One of the hottest areas of growth for Python is in the scientific and data science communities. But if that work is done in an academic or research setting, it can be very hard to get proper credit for it. You have to write full-on peer-reviewed articles. That's where Arvon Smith and Joss, or the Journal of Open Source Software, comes in. Here, developers, scientists, or other research-oriented folks can submit their software as a brief paper. Join us on this episode to learn all about that and Arvon's work with some of the most cutting-edge projects in astronomy at the Space Telescope Science Institute. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 157, recorded April 6th, 2018. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Active State and Rollbar. Please check out what they're both offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Arvon, welcome to Talk Python. Thank you for having me. It's really wonderful to have you here. I'm super excited to talk about Joss and this this whole open journal of open source computing and scientific computing. I, I think what you guys are doing there is really wonderful, and I think it'll op- open up some possibilities and opportunities to a lot of the listeners that maybe they weren't aware of. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a fun project, and so uh, it's uh, always fun to talk about it with new people. So should be should be great. But before we get to it, let's start with your story. How do you get into programming? Yeah, so I'm definitely not a um, professionally trained programmer. Let's put it that way. Um, so I have a background in chemistry as an undergraduate, and then actually I have a PhD in astrochemistry, which is kind of like doing chemistry with big telescopes. Uh, so looking at gas and dust in space. You're one of these people that can look at stuff like 25 light years away or something and go, oh, that, that probably has this element in the atmosphere yeah, or something yeah, insane it, like this, basically, right? Um, and, and, um, and, and basically, I, I went to astrochemistry. I, I did a PhD, in fact, actually, because I really just didn't know what else to do, which sounds like an awful idea, but um, <laughs> it's how it happened. Um, and, and, so, and I also wasn't that interested in chemistry, so I decided to like go towards astrochemistry where you don't actually have to be that good at chemistry it turns out because most astronomers don't know anything about chemistry so you can be quite successful with a little bit i absolutely love chemistry but i'm scared of doing chemistry like when i pick up say benzene or something they're like oh yeah that that's carcinogenic and if it gets on your skin it'll soak through so don't do that i know you know yeah this really freaks me out to do this stuff even though it's cool yeah I I, i so i had a lot of time in the lab as an undergraduate and actually it means i'm really averse to like precision anything now so like precision baking in fact baking which is really just chemistry i i I hate it and it drives my wife crazy like i just don't like measuring anything um she's a very good cook and just won't ever have me in the kitchen because i'm so averse to anything precise involving like ingredients now and I, i i blame my undergraduate uh yeah yeah. Yeah, so so yeah sorry um so that's i didn't do so i did some fortran um programming in um that was my first exposure to programming was as an undergraduate uh fortran uh which is very popular in chemistry still uh computational chemistry especially because it's got a lot of very fast kind of numerical routines if you need to like work out how an electron is interacting with another electron you need like fast maths to do that um and uh, then during my PhD, like lots of people, I had to do 
you know, some data analysis and had reasonable amount of data to process. So started with um, scripting languages. So first kind of language I really picked up was Perl. Um, and uh, that was really, you know, that was because that was what was on the shelf in the office. Uh, and this would be like 2002 or something. So, you know, um, that was a, probably a reasonable choice then, I guess. And so, you know, a mixture of sort of Perl, some C, some Fortran. And then I went to this lib- course run by the library, um, by what was called Information Services, uh, which is sort of library science, and did a web programming, as it was called, course, um, and learned about HTML and stuff. And that thought that was really exciting. And learned about iframes and then came back to my office and said, hey, iframes are really cool. They were like, never use iframes. So I was like, really? Oh, they're, they're so awesome. And so <laughs> they seem amazing. Yeah, they Don't seem amazing. <laughs> and, so, um, and so then I started to pick up, just did, had a very slightest kind of touch of PHP. But actually, that was at a time when uh, the framework Ruby on Rails was actually sort of a, a, a sort of beta phase, I guess, 2004 or five. And a friend of mine who was, who was actually a legitimately very talented programmer, I think, and, you know, coded since he was a kid, was like, oh, you should totally look at this Rails thing if you're interested in sort of web application development. Put, put down the PHP. Yeah, 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 for Rails. sure. So actually, you know, so I started using Rails, which at the time I didn't really even know I was sort of using Ruby, um, I guess, and then had a few years just kind of building, toying around with stuff, and then read this book um, called... Uh, Ruby for Rails, uh, written by a guy called David Black, who's big in the kind of um, in the Ruby community. He's famously sort of, you know, was on IRC when David Heinemeier Hansen was learning Ruby and building Rails and stuff. And uh, and um, and it's really just kind of explains how this sort of framework you're using is 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 actually just Ruby syntax and it's just a you know DSL and and that was really enlightening for me. And actually, that meant that by the end of my PhD, I realized I was much more interested in programming than I was any of the science I was doing. I took that <laughs> as a strong signal I should get out of academia. Um, and yeah, I received the same signal, by the way. Yeah, well, it's just you just start to realize that some people read the literature a lot more than you and just know more. And I was like, how do you know about that result? And they're like, well, I read papers. I'm like, huh, I'm not really doing that very much. And that seems like a bad sign. Um, but I was writing, reading a lot of programming books. so. I just sort of gracefully exited with my PhD uh, at the end of my studies and and actually went and had a year um, working in bioinformatics, uh, which is where Ruby's very big as well. So actually knowing Ruby there was actually kind of a big deal. That's kind of the go-to scripting language for um, for bioinformatics, certainly in the mid-2000s. I think, you know, that, that sounds really interesting. And I think what you're doing today is actually you know i'm just so excited to be able to talk to you a little bit later at the end of the show about it so tell people where you've gotten to today yeah so today i work at a place called space telescope science institute which is in uh, baltimore uh in, on the u.s east coast and it uh we run uh, we were actually set up to fly and operate the hubble space telescope uh so that was uh something like 30 years ago that the institute was created and we're actually a non-profit uh, government contractor. So we get, you know, NASA still pays us to operate Hubble. And we're currently developing uh, all the sort of ground systems, data management um, systems for the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the kind of next big flagship mission for NASA. Um, and so we have a lot of, we, do, we build a lot of kind of core infrastructure for data processing, which is uh, a lot of the work that I oversee here. Um, we call it data management. And um, 
we also build a lot of community tools, which are all pretty much exclusively these days built on the sort of scientific Python so position being in charge of lots of time and effort that we spend on scientific Python, uh, but full disclosure, have never written a single line of Python in my life. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting for me. Um, but I but I know a reasonable amount about open source and that kind of stuff. So I, I feel yeah, qualified, yeah. but it's interesting that sometimes I write pseudocode and I'm pretty sure it would never compile. In fact, I've been told as much. So, you know, um, um, yes, yeah, so I'm not a Python uh, expert by any by any uh, stretch, although I should probably learn sometimes. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how Python is really becoming highly used in this open source science space. And it seems to really be something ad- adopted by the, the various telescopes, right? That was like a big theme at the conference uh, last year. I think at PyCon last year, a guy called Jake Vanderplas gave a keynote. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he gave a great keynote. Yeah, and it was something like the unreasonable effectiveness of Python in, for science or something. <laughs> um, it was it was kind of a fun title. And um, yeah, he just really sketched out what I would say now, which is just there's just this really deep set of libraries that you can use um, in sort of numerical scientific computing in Python. And then, of course, you can do things if you, you know, need to have C bindings or whatever, you can do that too. And so there's just really just a very, it goes very deep. And, um, and really now there's just this sort of overwhelming quantity of, uh, of kind of core libraries out there. So that then things like, um, we have a, we have a project where we have a lot of core contributors for a thing called AstroPy, which is a very popular library in astronomy and astrophysics. And, you know, that builds upon SciPy and NumPy and, and obviously Python. And, you know, and so it's really, you know, we're we're contributing to that ecosystem. Um, we had people here a few years ago who were very active on things like Matplotlib, that kind of thing. And so, you know, there's pretty the Institute's actual credentials in the sort of Python community, pretty deep, actually, Um People like Perry Greenfield, who still here, was really one of the key people that actually introduced the astronomical community to Python. You know, and that that, that you know, it's kind of interesting to reflect on the fact that sometimes big changes come from just one or two people just deciding that they're going to make a change. Right from the ground up, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, so I feel very lucky that, you know, I can go and he's like four doors down from me. I can go and <laughs> just ask him questions about, hey, why why is it this way? And he's like, oh, let's talk about that. And, you know, he's got so much context. It's fantastic. That's probably a good segue to just talking about the journal that you're the, the chief editor for. Yes. Journal of Open Source Software, JOS. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So JOS. What is JOS? Yeah. So JOS is a, uh, well, I'll give you the one line description. I like to call it a developer-friendly journal, which, and and so we should probably talk more about what that what I mean by that. But JOS is a journal that tries to do all the right things in terms of being a legitimate academic journal. And it's surprising how the establishment, I would say at some level, makes that look very hard and very complex, and it's actually really not. Um, you have to yeah. do some of the right things, like register with the Library of Congress and get an ISBN number and things like that. I mean, there's weird stuff that you just genuinely wouldn't know. But it's not like, it's like five things you need to do, not 50. And uh, we publish papers about uh, open source software with a scientific goal, whether software is science or research focused, I should say. And so generally, that means academics who are writing software submit to us. And there's a couple of things that are kind of important about it. One is we, uh, we review uh, primarily um, for the quality of the software submission. So we, we're actually not doing a big review of a paper. 
there does need to be a paper. It's generally very short. In fact, we encourage it to be short. So just papers are generally less than two sides, A4 or US letter, however you <laughs> printed it out. They're really <laughs> genuinely short. Um, and they, our submission format is Markdown. Um, and uh, and BibTeX, so we use Pandoc to compile the things. And the, the, the kind of submission and review and kind of whole, whole editorial process happens on GitHub uh, in public repositories, so lot, uh, in a public reviews repository. So it's, it's kind of a, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting and weird in some of the things we do. But at the end, we sort of try and do all the right things in terms of we give a DOI, which is a kind of a weird URL shortener that academics use that, mean that you can index uh sort of citations to other work right one of the issues that runs around that, that comes up around that is if i wrote say a paper published in a high-end journal and it references some package i depend upon that generated my results the owner of that package could just be having a bad day and just go i'm deleting this github repo and it's gone right and so this doi is sort of a almost like code in escrow type of thing right yeah so we they, there's sort of there's actually two dois that get created when a joss paper comes into well gets published we make an archive of the software or actually we request that the author makes an archive of the software so there's um there's there's tools um like uh, a tool called figshare and there's another one called zenodo uh, that is run by uh, the CERN people at CERN, uh, so people who do sort of the computing infrastructure for the Large Hadron Collider. And what they do is they you, they actually set up a webhook. If you do this from a GitHub repository, they you know they you basically configure this add-on. And when you do a release on GitHub, it makes an archive. It takes a snapshot of that code, and it actually doesn't include the Git history, which weirdly maybe you would want you know actually legitimately you might want but it, it, it takes a, like a tarball from github archives it and gives it a doi so the doi points to zenodo then um but it, zenodo then also has a copy of the code so if yes you or i decided to you know rage quit um open source or something <laughs> or just get really burnt out actually that's not rage quitting at all that's just legitimately decided to disappear off the planet um we we the code is still available so when when you submit to joss and when you're accepted the lap one of the last steps is when the review is complete and the changes have been requested and made to the satisfaction of the reviewer then they take an arc uh, we ask the author to make an archive of code and then the paper also gets a doi so um so then when people cite want to cite that package we encourage them to cite the paper and then the paper connects to the archive of the code if that makes sense so there's sort of some yeah. guarantee that in the future, if you stumble across this paper, then you should be able to still find the source code, even if it's not on GitHub or GitHub doesn't exist or something. Right, right, right. And, you know, I think it's there's a lot of stuff happening around there, and I don't want to go too deep down the hole of, of that. But even if you have the source code, that doesn't necessarily mean it's saved for all all time, right? So maybe it runs on a certain flavor of Linux uh, that has a certain version of some internal bits that it works on. And if that is gone, right, there's like, there's layers outside just the software. There's the versions of Python, if it were based on Python, right? There's, there's whole layers of, of this. And, you know, things like containers, like Docker and whatnot, are like interesting players in this space as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think there's definitely more we could do there. Um, one of the things that's come out of the work we've done on Joss uh, is that we've got a, sort of fairly generic tool set of tooling now uh so we've got a uh sort of a 
a fairly lightweight uh, web application that allows people to submit something for review. And then we've got an automated uh, bot that's called Whedon. Uh, some of us are Firefly fans, I guess, Joss Whedon. Um, it, uh, and it's the, it's the Whedon handle on <laughs> GitHub, which is kind of fun. And so that bot actually helps with a lot of the editorial management. So a lot of that is sort of chat ops kind of automated in GitHub issues. Um, and so that toolchain can actually be applied to other things. So one of the things that's coming up is that Joss has actually been forked to make a sort of sister journal uh, called Journal of Open Source Education or Jose. And that's actually using exactly the same toolchain. Uh, it's literally just a fork of the code base. And so we've generalized that. So you can imagine we definitely talked about um, containers as something that actually are interesting to think about reviewing and saving and having those is actually a, a, there's been the idea of the sort of journal of open source containers um as a journal um i'm not sure exactly what i think about that yet because i actually think to your point it might even just be better to say well if you've got a just submission really what we want you to do is have a supporting kind of infrastructure piece like a container to make sure that that software has some chance of running in the future with some increased longevity um but we haven't we haven't gone that far yet but it's definitely interesting it's very interesting. I think it also may it may put extra pressure and, and friction, though, on getting submissions. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're definitely not short yeah. on submissions. Um, we've been going for a little under two years now, and we're up to close to 300 submissions. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Um, and it keeps me busy. <laughs> and the editorial team, <laughs> we've got a great team of editors. So part of me thinks, huh, if we could slightly reduce the number of submissions, that'd be kind of cool and help my Friday <laughs> evenings. But no, no, I, you're absolutely right. Um, it's not. Um, we don't want to raise the bar too high. Um, we, we feel like we've got a pretty good kind of quality bar right now. You know, uh, it says it in the name. You have to use an open source license, not one that you've made up. You know, one that's approved by the OSI. An official one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You <laughs> pick one of these three hundred, it turns out, or whatever. But there are lots. But you know, pick one. And then we our review is primarily, you know, about um, the sort of usability of the software. Um, we encourage people to have tests, ideally automated tests. Uh, documentation is a must. Uh, some, you know, we sort of have, you know, acceptable, better, best kind of categories and and you know one of one of the reasons we set up Joss was to that we felt like a lot of the software that's in the sort of academic literature when people write software papers which is a thing outside of Joss like you write a paper about software to get some sort of career credit as an academic, uh, give people something to cite. The, they, nobody ever looked at the software. The, re, the review was always about the paper and never about the software. So we've turned it on its head. Our, most of our review is about the software and not about the paper. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the right way to do it. And you, like you said at the beginning, the actual submission, uh, uh, what's your guidelines for the thing you accept is really simple. It's like an abstract and basically supporting materials and links to the software Absolutely. so yeah. maybe maybe it's worth talking about briefly like why does this exist because you mentioned there was these other software oriented journals there's pick an industry there's 50 journals in that industry they're usually like expensive you got to buy them they're private they go out to like university li uh, libraries and professors and stuff like that for me the number one motivation for joss is to find a way to credit people in academic settings or in fact research settings the difference so i don't know whether this is interesting you know academic research being sort of public not for profit and you know commercial research is a more sort of general you know could include commercial activity i guess so people who are in a research setting who 
are writing software as part of their job who are struggling to get career credit for that. And that turns out to encompass a lot of people that I know. Um, uh, I, I guess technically it probably would have been me at one point, except I don't actually, I personally wasn't ever trying to sort of follow an academic career track, <laughs> uh, which resulted, you know, relied upon papers and that kind of thing. Right. But this is basically the the currency of professorships and tenure track sure. positions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the way that you get a job as an academic is you write papers and then people cite your work. And, uh, you know, if you write enough papers and you get enough citations and uh, then at some point a group of people in a room, they're generally called like a tenure committee, tenure review committee will decide that you're, you can have a permanent job in academia. And that's like the golden ticket tenure. Um, and and the, the, the sort of the, the problem with that is that it's primarily and in many universities exclusively based on papers. Um, it does not take into account whether you give really good public talks, which lots of universities would say is a good, like outreach is important, or it would not take into account the fact that um, you spent three years collecting a really valuable data set that lots of people have used, like data sets generally aren't credit worthy. Like the only thing we have, we have this one dimensional kind of credit model, which is papers and citations. And, and so the problem is, if you write really high quality software for a research setting you might spend a significant fraction of your time doing that and if you spend so much time that you your number of papers suffers then you're going to get dinged on that in terms of your career prospects and so software papers so a paper that describes a piece of software is a sort of understood hack on the current academic system except that um, software papers come with a bunch of problems and Joss tries to address a few of those. One is which, one of which is, you know, if you want to write a paper about a piece of software, you generally have to have sort of supporting new research results. Right. That's the hardest part, it I is. think. Like, it's incredibly tough. Yeah. It's not enough to say I've built the most efficient, most awesome AI framework for discovering exoplanets. You have to go and find exoplanets. <laughs> and then you just do. coincidentally, yeah. you get to talk about how you did it. Right? Uh, yeah. It just happens I have this repository over here, which happens to be <laughs> on GitHub with a license and you might want to use it. You know, like it's like a byline of the paper. So I have a problem with that. Um, and I, I think it especially is bad for long-lived so arguably like successful software, right? Like if there were only ever one release of a piece of software, you could say, okay, well, you know, you probably built it when trying to do some research. So you should write a paper that describes the software and some research results, the end. Okay, but if what happens on version two? Like if you and I decide to work on a piece of software that you did version one, that you probably don't want to write another paper because now people might cite the other paper and now you don't get, academics worry about citation dilution it sounds like such a ridiculous thing but it's real like and because it turns into this number called an h index which is just uh well is a way of trying to parameterize capture the sort of impact of a researcher so yeah so i have uh, so joss papers are uh you know the idea is that no results are actually permitted it's not that we don't need results, you're not allowed to put novel results in the paper because we're not going to review that. Like we, that's not what the reviewers are there to do. So that's really sort of why we call it developer friendly. Like the idea being, if you have done the hard work to write this piece of software, we don't want you to spend more than roughly an hour writing the paper to go with it. Um, and that turns out to be, you know, appealing to quite a lot of people. Yeah, that's really awesome. And so people can 
who have worked in any research area, like you said, not just academics, if they want credit for the software that they have created in terms of academic credit, academic. right? Yeah. The, the special coins you get at the university when you get <laughs> cited, right? Yeah. That, that type of currency. Yeah. So, so actually, to that point, you know, we do get, I was actually looking through some submissions earlier today. We do have mixtures of people submitting, um, you know, most, most of our authors are in an academic setting. So either in some kind of research institute, but where papers legitimately count towards their sort of career progression. Uh, but we do have people in commercial companies as well, um, especially in the sort of data science um, ecosystem. Um, I was looking today and there was a paper, it was a scikit-learn contrib package. Uh, I think it was the HDB scan, some, some, some new, you know, implementation of a, of a, of an algorithm. And it was somebody at a university and somebody from Spotify, I think, or, or no, <laughs> nice. Shopify actually. Yeah. Very, very similar, but you know, but it was clearly looked like it was a data scientist and, and, um, at a company who maybe doesn't care about that credit, but also maybe was a university in a university setting at some point. I think especially yeah, in data science, I feel like there are many people who go and sort of per, go a long way in the academic space, and then they go into commercial data science. And I feel there's this interesting tension and trade-off in the whole data science space in that the demand for data scientists so strongly motivates or pulls people out of academics because they're like, we'll pay you half a million dollars. Forget tenure. You can just, you know, yeah, you go do just, this. You're yeah. like, right on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, there's, there's still that, that tie back to like, I work with this professor or this group, and I'm still kind of helping them, and they give me good ideas. And so I feel like maybe a lot of the papers come from that sort of remaining ties that yeah, these groups have. Yeah, some, some definitely do. Um, I don't think I have a good handle on how many. Um, but the, um, I think even if you've left academia, I think there's still you know, the conventional way to share your ideas is in the literature, you, publishing papers. And so I think it's very natural for people to want to um, to write a paper. And then, you know, if we're like, well, here's a super short way of getting a paper. Then, <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Well, especially if you've done the work and we'll get to some of the details in a little bit, but I feel like what you've done is you've come up with this concept of how you submit your stuff mm -hmm. to the journal, your your software. And it pretty much just checks the box of here's how you run a good open source project. Yeah. <laughs> it has a good open source license. It has documentation. It has tests. It's hosted in somewhere like GitHub, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. So when I was working at GitHub, I really learned a lot about how you know successful projects um, come sort of into existence and what are some of the sort of key things that you need. And so really... You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of material out there now, but certainly four and a half years ago, this sort of idea of sort of what healthy open source looked like or what a successful project looked like wasn't like wasn't written down that much. And so the team I was in uh, GitHub was sort of trying to create some of that sort of shared understanding in the community. And and actually, while I was there, I was thinking about journals and had already been talking to some other commercial publishers just who were asking me about GitHub. So I was sort of helping them understand open source, but I was representing the company. And 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 then um, towards the, towards, sort of in my final year, uh, the company, I just sort of figured, you know what? I Like none of the conversations I've had have been very satisfying. They're not getting it. Like they're not, like they're, they're, they're doing kind of the wrong thing. And I realized, I just started hacking on some code. I was like, you know what? I think I could do this. And I think it'd be super easy. 
And if you assume that the review could happen in an issue and, you know, submission is just creating an issue. And like I realized, I mean, we, we have a strong GitHub dependency via the API, but I just realized that I think thought I kind of knew enough to do it better myself. Um, so, then, yeah. so then just decided to go for it. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by ActiveState. ActiveState gives you a faster way to build and secure open source runtimes from your first line of code through to production. Every second you spend building your Python distro or trying to secure your Python programs is time away from doing the work you love. Tired of resolving dependencies or making sure you tick off all the security boxes when you ship to production? With ActiveState, you can focus on your code and leave the open source to them. Your teams can standardize with their Python builds for your specific use. You have less friction in the development cycle, and that means you can deliver apps faster. If you need to manage your apps in production, they even give you a unique server-side way to verify your Python applications at runtime. You can bake security right into your Python products without impacting performance. Cut the hours wasted building your distro, finding the right package, or making sure you tick off all the security boxes when you ship to production. Go faster. Spend more time doing the work you love and comply with your enterprise needs for security. Try them and see why their distribution was chosen by IBM, Microsoft, NASA, Siemens, PepsiCo, and others. Join millions of developers who trust ActiveState to build their open source language distros. Visit talkpython.fm slash activestate and cut the time configuring and securing your Python builds. That's talkpython.fm slash activestate. Let's talk a little bit about just the whole uh, process. Actually, let me let's touch first on the kinds of projects that come up here. So people are listening. They're like, "Well, I've done some stuff. It's kind of research. It's a project. Could, would it would it fit?" So let me just read the quick description of a couple recent uh, things you guys accepted. So one is NiaPy N I A Pi, and it's a new micro framework for building and using nature inspired inspired algorithms in python so that that's that's pretty cool there's one pi new castro which is python interfaces for nuclear reaction rate databases yeah. including <laughs> jina stuff there, there's a bunch of these like uh, they're, they're not super um large scale they're they seem a lot of them are like i need to get to this data or i need to do this calculation and nothing quite works so here's the bridge that i had to build for myself yep. a lot of times yeah so we get i mean there's a few different categories of software that we get actually there's a bunch i mean those two i'm pretty sure i didn't edit either of those um because you know one of the problems we have is you know we get submissions i'm like i have no idea i don't even under i like we ask them to write <laughs> we ask the authors to submit a general audience audience uh, for a generalist audience a summary of their software and i read them I'm like i have no idea what this software does like, i yes. literally <laughs> do not understand any of these sentences <laughs> thankfully uh we've got like i think 16 editors now and somebody will be like oh yeah i know this stuff oh i know enough that i can help edit this and then we have a pretty good reviewer pool now um uh, it's uh, i think uh, well over 200 people who volunteered to review for the journal and so we just have um their sort of language expertise and uh their subject expertise and their and their github handles so we just ping them when submissions that's I think that works really well. And you do have a real rock star cast of uh, supporting editors. I mean, you look through there and there's, there's a bunch of big names, including Jake Vanderplas, yep. Catherine Huff, who does a bunch of the nuclear stuff. Maybe she probably reviewed that one I, yeah, uh, I that did, yeah. I just shot at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reason I learned about you guys is I actually was one of the reviewers on a thing called Batman. Oh, Statistical what? analysis for expensive 
computer codes made easy. Fantastic. I thought I recognized your face. There you go. It's your, yeah, it's yeah. your See? <laughs> I didn't make that. That's from my GitHub. Yeah. yeah that's, that's awesome. Thank you for your time. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things I thought might be fun, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to feature this is sort of twofold. One, if, if you're working in an you know, area of either research, you're a grad student or even undergrad, and you've got some kind of interesting open source software thing, that would be a good thing to submit. That would be great. Mm -hmm. But there are many people who ask me like, hey, I'm really just getting started. I want to contribute to open source. But you know, you can't just drop in on Django and just start adding to Django because it's like a eight-year-old, highly polished, maybe not exactly, eight, but not new greenfield stuff. It's like very sensitive to change and it's very nuanced. Whereas I think... Becoming a reviewer, for example, might be a really nice way to start to be part of open source if you're like a student or something for and you're sure. trying to yeah. get it on your yeah. resume for when you get out of school or whatever. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, I think this is true. I only have anecdotal evidence, but I'm going to believe it because it supports what I want to believe, um, which is that, you know, people seem to genuinely enjoy the both the review process and being reviewed. Like but authors and reviewers seem to just we could do probably a sentiment analysis of all the comments or something because they're all public. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we get people who say, I say, you know, would you mind reviewing this? I, I'd love to. I'm like, really? Okay. I mean, I've had people email me and say, why haven't you given me anything to review yet? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm just kind of, your name hasn't come up yet. And, and I do worry um, that sometimes I go to people I know who would be good for this. So I actually, one of the things I'd like to automate is um, reviewer suggestions. We have this big list. It's in a spreadsheet. I feel like it's something that our bot could do. Um, but yeah, maybe you could have tags and like these are their specialties. Yeah, exactly. And they could, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, and 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 it would also keep track of how many reviews you've done because one sort of over taxing people is one of the things to worry about. <laughs> this person's good. Yeah, they get everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so um, but yeah, for sure, people seem to you know number of times where reviewers are like. This was a really good experience because I learned about this package and all that all really we want people to do as a reviewer is try and install it and run it and verify it. Right. So that involves reading the docs, looking at the code. Um, ideally, you know, if you find that there's methods that are uncommented, quite often um, reviewers will actually make pull requests against the thing they're reviewing, uh, which is kind of nice. And just there's this. You know, everyone gets the idea that um, what we're trying to do is create a you know highly usable piece of software, um, you know, that solves solves a real problem. So, yeah, I think actually that's a great suggestion for people who are looking to, you know, dip their toe, you know, take first steps in open source. Joss is actually a great place to come and just read read people's you know code. Often, as you say, these are pretty small packages. Um, and, you know, and actually maybe even become a contributor. Um, yeah, that's a great yeah, idea. Absolutely. A lot of people who are getting into open source, some of their first steps into any particular project is to help with documentation or tutorials or examples. And this this review process is similar to that. It is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we, we have a fairly prescriptive process. So we don't kind of peep, leave people with just what do you think about this piece of software? So there's like 20 checkboxes that we ask people. to. Yeah. Do. Does it have an open source license? Yeah. Yes or no. <laughs> yes. Do, does it have tests? Yes or no. It's almost like a little checkbox. I think yeah. there are actual check boxes in the, there are the there are issue. yeah 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 absolutely absolutely so we <laughs> check box driven development or something <laughs> nice yeah so i recommend to people out there if this sounds super interesting if maybe you're still in, in college or grad school and you're like i want to sort of 
you know, start to build a resume around this kind of stuff, you know, becoming a reviewer would be real easy. And people who are, especially in school, they already have some specialty, so they can help in that area. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nice. And so Joss is actually one of four journals under a, a larger banner called just Open Journals at OJ.org, right? Yeah, that's correct. Tell us briefly about the others. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so the first, I think the first one I set up is this one called the Open Journal of Astrophysics. Um, and that's my least successful. <laughs> so I guess, oh, so <laughs> stepping back, it, it, it would appear based on the evidence I create journals in my spare time, which is a horrible thing to do. <laughs> if you want to have any spare time uh, in the future. So yeah, so this is like my problem in life that I seem to make academic journals. Um, and it, and it, 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 it's a, a big time sink. Um, so the Open Journal of Astrophysics was the first. Um, we actually published three papers. It's kind of currently paused right now, mostly because we don't really have a particularly strong or, in, well, no, we have a strong but not very engaged editorial board. And the important thing to re- realize about a journal is, kind of lives and dies by the the ability and willingness of the editors to do, you know, and the reviewers to come together and review content. So, you mm-hmm. know, um, the Open Journal of Astrophysics is kind of in a bit of a hiatus right now. Um, I don't know what will happen with that project. Um, it's a nice, it's a nice project um, in the sense that we, the model is to review papers that are already on the archive, which is a preprint server where people put kind of free and open copies of papers that they're going to submit to other journals. So the idea being that you could just do a sort of review um, in a browser. Um, and the, the, there's, this, there's lots of other journals now following this model. They call them archive overlay journals. Um, and so um, I'm sorry we didn't weren't more successful with that, but, you know, such is life. Um, the second is uh, the Journal of Brief Ideas. I built that with a, a guy called David Harris, who's a physicist uh, in Australia. And he just has this problem. He just really wanted to find a way to capture um, short ideas, good or bad, um, and have a way for people to just write them down and say, you know, uh, here's an idea. I'm not going to take it further or I don't have time right now. And so it's more like a sort of, diary of thoughts from the community um and it could be like the seed of potential research projects yeah, but i'm not going to pursue it that right, type of thing right and and you know why that exists is kind of interesting you know academics live or die at some level by the quality of their ideas and the novelty of their ideas which is good and bad um so academics it turns out care a lot about you know, who had the idea first. And I, I really feel like that's one thing reflecting on time in sort of industry, something that I find engineering cultures care much less about. You're like, we care about building a good system, something reliable. I don't care whose idea this was. This is just a good idea. Whereas academics <laughs> are very keen, very careful to award, you know, oh, it was this person, you know, Mike's idea first, and then I took it forward. But he had the original idea. You know, you hear them a lot. It's, very it's the citations, it's yeah. the papers, and these yeah. are all driven by the first paper gets exactly. the citations exactly. on every subsequent exactly. paper exactly. and all that, right? So, so Journal Brief Ideas is a way for people to say, I've got an idea. It could be good. It could be bad. I want to write it down because I want to, I guess put a, I mean, you know, like put a stake in the ground. A, a little bit of a flag yeah, on this idea. I think so if but I ever come it's back to it, fun. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, people people do uh, use it um uh, and i don't edit that it's david as the sole editor it doesn't go through review so they're limited to 200 words uh these ideas um so really short so you can have 200 words and a figure like you know um, and that's it and then um and then joss uh is the third journal uh that i've uh, created and that's by far the most successful um it it's at some level sort of one of the things that i did when building joss was i really wanted to absolutely minimize the amount of new software i wrote um one of the hard things about open journal of astrophysics is there was quite a complex sort of web-based ui with pdf annotations and like lots of bits of technology that I wasn't particularly well versed in. And so Joss is super simple. It's like a web form that leverages the GitHub API to open an issue. And that's it. Like literally that's it. Um, and it's got a very small database behind it so that it can render out the accepted papers. Um, and then uh, journal of open source education is, is ready to go. In fact, I think they're very close to accepting submissions um, and that that's not a journal that I'm going to be day to day involved in in running, but it's part of the sort of um, uh, family of, of journals. So really, the two that are most similar are Joss and, and Jose. They are, you know, very, very similar journals and using the same yeah. operating model. Yeah, those are really cool. I, I like it. This portion of Talk Python to Me has been brought to you by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, Ugh. relying on users to report errors, digging through log files, trying to debug issues, or getting millions of alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insight, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. Adding Rollbar to your Python app is as easy as pip install Rollbar. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. Are you considering self-hosting tools for security or compliance reasons? Then you should really check out Rollbar's compliant SaaS option. Get advanced security features and meet compliance without the hassle of self-hosting, including HIPAA, ISO 27001, Privacy Shield, and more. They'd love to give you a demo. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to talkpython.fm slash rollbar and check them out. So let's just talk real briefly about... Um, Compare and contrast. Most of these articles are written and published in high-end, very private, cloistered sort of journals, right? Like JAMA for Journal of American Medical Association or JRME for education. And you can't just like easily go get them. The papers are often not available on the internet. They're, they're really packaged away just for a few folks to get to, which I think is very odd because so much of the research is paid for by National Science Foundation or National Institute of Health or whatever. Sure. So we basically, the, the public pays for this research and then the results of it are hidden away from public view. Right. Yes. So, yeah, like this is this is very much not like what you guys are doing. No, right? I mean, everything you said is true. Um, I think, you know, there's a growing interest in what's generally termed open access publishing, which is not, you know, so stuff once it's accepted and is in the journal is available for all to read. But right now, a lot of the business models of academic publishing either rely on journal subscriptions. So when your library or you as an individual buy access to these papers um, and that's generally, you know, a journal subscription and that can run to you know, enormous amounts of money. You know, single universities paying millions of dollars a year to publishers um, just to gain access to 
hilariously or disgracefully the papers that their academics have written <laughs> so you know like <laughs> yeah it's, exactly it's messed up actually um and it you is. know you you as an academic secure public funding often for research you then do the research you give your copyright to your research to the journal that then puts it behind a paywall and sells it back to your university and to the public so you know there's a lot wrong with that to be fair the journals would say well we add a lot of value. We bring peer review to the process. Uh, we, you know, make the papers. We format them nicely. We, 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 you know, we, we run, we maintain quality at some level. And much of that is true, um, but the, the, the cost is still pretty high. And I think there's a lot of interest in low-cost publishing these days. And that not doesn't mean low quality. It just means how low can that cost go at some level. And so, Joss, our, our running costs, if you ignore people time, which I'm going to because we're all volunteers, uh, we're something around $4 per paper um, to in sort of production costs. And that's actually most of that cost is, um, uh, you know, a small web server for running uh, the, app, the web app. And the fact that there are actual we have to pay uh, subscription fees to get the DOIs. So it costs us about $1.50 for each DOI. And we have to pay a membership fee to this organization called Crossref to to have sort of to be able to continue to generate those those DOIs. Right. That dramatically changes the, the structure. And, uh, you know, I know that on the academic journals, it's often professors who are not paid by the journal in any way or form for sure. asked to volunteer for in the same role as the reviewers are here. So it's not like they're paying huge sums to the reviewers. No, 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 no. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. It's it, crazy. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm not, um, yeah, there's so much to say about publishing. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is that peer review, which we see as this, you know, pinnacle of quality and uh, sort of process it's actually pretty new. Peer reviews only existed for 50 years, just full stop. Like most journals just didn't have it. Um, and like famously, people like Einstein would write to the editor and they'd send a letter saying, oh, you know, here's my new theory of special relativity. And there is nobody qualified in the world to review this. So you just yes. must publish it right now. And they'd be like, <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, you're, I think you're right. <laughs> seems legit. But like it just didn't get a review. It just got published. And so peer review is, you know, um, is important. Um, but generally, as you say, you know, people aren't paid for it. Uh, I think almost exclusively people aren't paid for it. And so um, it's part of your sort of contribution to the the, the academic to, ecosystem. To science, human knowledge. Yeah, yeah it's right. part of your yeah. job as an academic to review. And that's understood. We have the same model. We have people to review. We don't pay them. Um, and I don't think we have any interest in paying people to review. That would be weird, uh, given that we have no money anyway. So, um, but 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 we, what we do have, I I would say, is I think we by being open, our reviews being open, a lot of peer review in academic journals is is closed. You don't know who's reviewing your work. Uh, it's anonymized. I feel like that openness incentivizes good behavior uh, and actually quality. Uh, we get, you know, somebody. I I hope that one day. Somebody will be able to say, I am a Joss reviewer. I've reviewed 20 submissions. Here are my submissions. And you can go and look at those and be like, this person does really nice reviews. This is actually really high quality, good insights from this person. And, you know, there is some work already going on in sort of publishing to make um, reviews a sort of a credit worthy activity. I mean, people write it on their resumes. They'll say, I review for you know app j or something but but you can't actually prove that 
like unless you're unless you're the editor and you're like no you don't review for me like you would never know <laughs> Um, so yeah, no, I think there's some, a lot to be said for sort of being open, and there's a lot to be said for sort of innovating with uh, cost models um, and pricing models. And so yeah, we don't charge anything to submit to Joss, and I don't think we have any interest in charging authors. We do, you know, you know, we we do have some ideas about how the review that we do could be valuable in other academic settings, like for other journals who want to get software review, but with that's just early phase stages of conversation sure. right now, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, really neat. I, I feel like Josh is open source and, you know, 2018 or 2016 business on the internet meets old, old business model. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, wait, these, why, why is it done that way? Cause it doesn't seem like it needs to be done that way. So right. yeah, pretty fun. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure. So I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about your other stuff. So maybe we'll leave it there for Joss okay. for now, but yep. uh, yeah, sure I just thing. want to encourage people who've worked on open source projects to either submit them or sign them for review. Cause I think that would be cool. So let's talk about the, the space telescope science Institute where, where you work. Right. So You've got two major new telescopes coming out that uh, that you mentioned at the top, right? The James Webb Space Telescope. And what's the other one called? I forgot. It's like the whole sky. Oh, so yeah. So, I mean, Hubble has been running for 25 years. We operate that still. And then there's um, WFIRST, which is a, a wide field uh, infrared space telescope. In fact, that's what the acronym stands for, um, is, <laughs> um, is uh, a mission that's currently kind of having a little bit of a rocky stage in uh, Congress because, you know, budgets are weird. And, uh, and, and these projects span longer than election cycles, which is dangerous, they do, right? Yeah. Um, it's so interesting to see, like, I've never had a job where I've actually had to pay attention to politics daily. Uh, I now have that job. Uh, and it's interesting. Um, it's uh, also not being American. It's kind of learning about <laughs> learning about that world. Um, so, so wait, they can do that? Yeah. Why do they do yeah. That? And so, you know, so so currently very active, very we're very active on JWST, James Webb Space Telescope, which is uh, is meant to fly uh, June ish 2020. Uh, so these are, you know, the, the lifetime You know, it takes. A long time it turns out to both convince the government to spend nine billion dollars which is what jwst is going to cost so that's a lot obviously um and then and then you have to build it and you know there's lots of novel technology that's just never been developed before and and it's um yeah it's they're complex and um you know they take decades to build it turns out yeah so what's what's the primary uh result expected from the james webb one and then the the wide field one yeah so i mean jwst is i think for me the most exciting thing about jwst is um it's gonna so it's an infrared space telescope uh, and infrared light is different in optical in the sense that it can kind of look further back in time because infrared light isn't obscured by dust in the galaxy and in the universe or, or isn't obscured as much. And so it allows us to look back further. Uh, and so uh, it, it look at the first light coming from the universe. So a period of time called reionization, when the universe kind of when the sort of, you know, uh, uh, first atoms and uh, were forming after the Big Bang. And so that's, you know, some hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang. JWST is going to be able to see the first galaxies and the first stars forming and that assembly of the very first 
the very first galaxies of stars uh, become sort of gravitationally bound. And so that's, um, that's very exciting for lots of reasons, but, you know, understanding the earliest phases of the universe. Um, another, another, um, kind of couple of big areas of uh sort of science highlights there are uh, um the ability because of the infrared light to be able to not uh be obscured as much because of dust you can look deeper into places where stars and planets are being formed um so what get called sort of generally protoplanetary environments so pre before that but when the stars are just even actually before sort of nuclear fission has started and the star hasn't actually turned on um you can probe those environments so understanding how solar systems like ours form uh, is kind of a big theme. Right, because it takes a while for that stuff to build up to get enough gravitational force to actually light up a star, oh, right? For sure, it's, yeah, yeah. It's formed for a long time, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, then the, and then the sort of final kind of big highlight for JWST is it's going to be the first telescope that really is going to be able to look at the atmospheres of planets outside our own solar system. So those are generally called exoplanets. Um, so over the past, you know, five, ten years, uh, the number of planets going around stars other than our sun has grown from like two to you know thousands and we now think that most stars have planets uh and there's pretty good reasons to believe that most stars have rocky planets somewhat like earth you know not maybe the same mass but but have you know places that might have uh, uh atmospheres so jwst is going to be able to look at the light passing through the uh, atmosphere of those planets and actually characterize that. So you can look for things like methane and, and ozone. And, and so one of the things that is exciting about that is that you could look for exoplanets that have atmospheres that aren't in an equilibrium state, as in maybe have life. So that's kind of exciting. So we're really at this point. Yeah, that's super exciting. Where we're beginning to think about characterizing, you know, we've discovered all these exoplanets. Now we're going to say, well, what are they like? And, and I mean, this is, yeah, this is kind of a pretty exciting time for everybody, really. Yeah, and it sounds like it's right up your alley, actually, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what about the Wide Field Infrared Survey? Yeah. What is, what is it up? So, it's a little bit later. So James Webb is 2020. The W-First is 2025. Uh, yes. Theoretically. Yes. Planned. Uh, maybe 26 now. Well, we'll see. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so um, W-First is a different, fundamentally a different type of telescope. It's actually um, a, uh, about five years ago, um, the U.S. government sort of, somebody picked up a phone or emailed somebody at nasa and said hey we've got a couple of spare space telescopes would you like one and so this is the i forget which agency it is that builds all the u.s spy telescopes but they basically donated they said we have a we have this telescope that's never flown in fact we've got two but you probably don't need to do you want this one and um and it's kind of a bit like hubble in that in the sense it's about two and a half meter mirror and uh and the goal is to do an Im, uh, infrared again so uh, uh longer wavelength uh, optical light and go and um do large scale survey of the sky so one of the things about um building telescopes in space is that you can you don't have an atmosphere to look through and uh that turns out to be a big deal because it means you get much better uh, we astronomers call it seeing but you get much better resolution so the shape of the thing that you see is not blurred by the atmosphere that you're looking through so um infrared uh infrared space telescopes particularly are very exciting especially when you're doing a large survey so w first is a survey telescope hubble and jwst are 
what are generally called sort of well aren't survey telescopes they're sort of a point and shoot they fix on a point and they'll stay there yeah, for maybe a yeah, long yeah, time yeah. and to that, see that, farther in the past yeah, yeah. so w first is exciting because of the volume of data so instead of you know Hubble over the last 30 years has produced something like 100 terabytes of data. WFIRST will produce about five petabytes, which is a not ridiculous amount of data, but it's enough to be interesting and like requires some thought. Yeah, I see a lot of interesting machine learning and image uh, AI type stuff being applied there. Right. And so WFIRST is going to um, uh, has a number of key uh, science goals. Uh, again, like exoplanets features heavily there, um, especially um, what's called um, um, uh, microlensing. So when a uh, when a planet passes in front of a star, you get a slight increase in the brightness because of the uh, effect gra- the, 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 the microlensing of the planet, right. which is just sounds crazy, but. It's, it's great, yeah. But it's the, the spend in space-time curves of light to come over, right? And, and dark energy, which is this sort of what not very well understood, what well, in fact pretty poorly understood, uh, you know, fraction component of uh, of the universe. So understand, like in sort of cosmology terms, how how the universe uh, kind of works. So it's and it's there's a, a, a you need very large samples of the galaxy and looking at like supernova and like distances and how they go off and how they're affected uh, um, uh, um, over over cosmological distances. And then you need to do lots of shape measurements of galaxies and it's, it's, but you need a big, you need a lot of them and you need very high precision data. And so W first fundamentally is a different type of, of telescope, but it's uh, yeah. Yeah. It should be really interesting to see new, new science coming from this new type of telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I, we could talk about space for hours, actually, <laughs> but I, I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. And, but one more thing that you worked on, that I thought it's cool, just give you a chance to tell the world about is Zooniverse. What's Zooniverse? Yeah. So Zooniverse is a, a platform, a web-based platform for uh, citizen science, which is, so citizen science uh, is this idea where members of the public, citizens of the world uh, can help uh, solve real research problems. So um, it Basically, it's a platform that brings together people with research problems, generally academic research problems, uh, so generally sort of professional researchers, have a problem where some, you know, they have some part of their analysis or some part of their, uh, their research project requires a lot of, uh, you know, human effort is probably the best way to think of it. So maybe classifying images by their type or um, pictures of galaxies by their shape. And so Zooniverse is a sort of a, a platform for bringing together the people who have the problems and members of the public who are interested in working on these problems. That's cool. So you can go and say, hey, I'm interested in a project and maybe browse the existing projects and then you'll learn how to participate. That's right. So there's probably about, I'm guessing there's about 50 projects there listed today. Um, I haven't been day-to-day involved with Zooniverse for about for about five years now. Um, but I was I guess, second hire on the project after they'd had this original success with a project called Galaxy Zoo, which was uh, taking a lot of images from a from a telescope called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey uh, and looking at galaxies and making a judgment about their shape, whether they had spiral arms, if they did, which way they were spinning, uh, what how many there were um and um and 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 that kind of thing. And it was very there was like a one off project that was very, very successful. They uh, secured some research funding to build out this, I, I guess, this approach to doing science with the public. Uh, and Zooniverse was born out of that. So, yeah, I mean, we did uh, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, as I say, I, I don't know. I, I don't track it day to day these days, but we did crazy stuff like, you know, looked at 
uh, images from camera traps in the Serengeti, uh, looking at looking at uh, pictures of animals, uh, doing things like tracing, uh, you know, uh, particle paths in. Uh, particle physics data, uh, looking for new physics, um, lots more looking at galaxies and gravitational lensing. It was, it was really broad, actually. It was really fun. Yeah, that sounds really fun, actually. Um, I don't know if this was part of it, but I, I knew there was this protein folding challenge where they almost gamified that it's like that kind of stuff yeah right? that's right so th that wasn't uh that wasn't us but it was um definitely similar idea and so you know the idea being that there's just people are generally like there's lots of people who are interested in science but they you know just aren't doing that day to day and are interested in contributing and um yeah, yeah so there's a chance to go help with some problem and you don't need a phd and a grant to do for it for sure and um and you know some of the some of the best projects are ones that just really i think we didn't know at the start we're going to be successful but i think probably still my favorite project is this one called old weather which is um which is like probably the most boring title ever it was pointed out <laughs> to me once but um so taking uh, log books from ships um from the royal navy uh world war one um where they recorded the weather and so it turns out that six times a day the Royal Navy, um, and actually lots of navies do now still, you know, they record, you know, the air pressure, the water temperature, the atmospheric conditions, cloud coverage, that kind of thing, um, and just write it down. And their handwriting is generally not very good. The way it's laid out on the page is complex. It's so you can do OCR on it um, and try and get a machine to read it, but you still need that sort of context to then extract extract the data so we the, but these logbooks are really cool they've got they've got basically stories about what's going on on the ship we made a website where people could transcribe them and people just got really into this and following there was a guy lieutenant dolphin i remember because his last name's dolphin like the the <laughs> yeah. fish is it the mammal um um and Dolphin kept getting thrown off ships for being drunk and disorderly, <laughs> getting reassigned. And they found him over like 10 years on different Royal Navy ships. And there'd be a note from the captain saying that Dolphin's been, you know, relieved of command and sent to another ship. And just but, but, but somebody got interested in in this person and, and, and followed them. And then, you know, there was like, you know, there's, there, it turns out there was only like two major sea battles in the First World War. Um, you know, Battle of Jutland and the Battle of the Falklands. Turns out I know about this stuff now. That's the other thing. It was fun just doing lots of other people's research. But, you know, in these logbooks, you're, you're watching the battle happen. It's saying, you know, spotted, you know, enemy battleship engaging, you know, collecting survivors or sinking. And like, you know, all that was real world, like wow. serious stuff happening. Um, but so but at the same time, these data that we're extracting get fed into these climate models. So they do reconstructions of um, climate uh, in uh, over historical times. Because one of the challenges in sort of understanding climate change today is actually having a long enough baseline to build models that can actually make good predictions for the future. And so, right, so right. And much of that's over uh, land, right? Right, uh, right. So because you have the, you can dig down into the the ice or whatever, but. The, the water washes that away, right? It's gone. Exactly. So yeah. um, this was a project we did with a bunch of meteorologists. Um, and it was, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, and for me, it was mostly a technology problem, um, building that kind of infrastructure, but it was fun to like do lots of, or be involved in lots of people's research as well. All right, Arvon, I think probably we're going to have to leave it there. Maybe just uh, a quick final call to action. People want to get involved with JAS or more generally all the stuff we've been speaking about. 
people would like to help review or want to learn more, then uh, I think the URL will probably be in your uh, show notes. Um, but joss.theoj.org. Um, yeah, we'd love to we'd love to have your help. It's been really good to chat with you and share what we're up to. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing your story. It's, it's cool work and, and keep it up. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, bye. Take care. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Arvon Smith, and this episode has been brought to you by ActiveState and Rollbar. ActiveState gives you a faster way to build and secure open source runtimes from your first line of code through to production. Check it out at talkpython.fm slash activestate. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until your users complain, of course. As Talk Python to Me listeners, track a ridiculous number of errors for free at rollbar.com slash talkpython to me. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by building 10 apps or our brand new 100 Days of Code in Python. And if you're interested in more than one course, be sure to check out the Everything Bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. (laughs) 